what do you think of the world should be? As Mexicans in the United States, many of us citizens of the United States as well as citizens of Mexico. I mean, it, uh, given the, the possibility of uh, renegotiating or reviewing NAFTA, uh, what our world would be, not, not as money senders to Mexico, you know, as, as the fifth city with more Mexicans in the world, what our world would be. Good evening, buenas noches. Uh, as you probably know, this is uh, the second in a series of lectures on Mexico and NAFTA organized by the CATS Center for Mexican Studies and in this case co-sponsored by International House. Tonight, um, we are honored to welcome back Cuauhtémoc Cárdenas, an old friend of this university and uh, most recently a Tinker Visiting Professor in History in the spring of 2003. A politician of, with a long and distinguished career, he is the founder of Mexico's Party of the Democratic Revolution. He has run for President of Mexico in the past three elections, and uh, as many of you probably know, is currently seeking his party's nomination for the 2006 election. Um, after his remarks, our guest uh, has kindly agreed to take questions fr from the audience and I will say something about the order of that uh, as after he concludes. So without further ado, because he really does need no introduction, especially at the University of Chicago, please join me in welcoming Cuauhtémoc Cárdenas, who will speak on NAFTA and Mexico 10 years later. Muchas gracias, Emilio. Dear friends, uh, I want to thank the University of Chicago for inviting me to participate in this series of talks on the 10 years of NAFTA. It honors me to be here at this university before you. I shall give you my vision on the effects of NAFTA on Mexico's economy and social conditions and the perspectives my country faces in regard to the current integration processes we are living. Since the beginning of the 90s, Mexico began to participate in the economic integration processes in the north of our continent after joining GATT and after the country began its commercial opening with no reciprocities a few years before. It was in those years, 1990-1991, when the negotiations of a free trade agreement with the United States, part of the initiative of the Enterprise of the Americas, promoted by President Bush Sr., became public. While the negotiations between Mexico and the United States were on course, Canada joined them. The negotiations concluded, and the North American Free Trade Agreement, NAFTA, became enforced on January 1, 1994. The initiative of the Enterprise of the Americas, we must recall, proposed to create a free trade zone comprising the whole of our continent through bilateral agreements between the United States and each of the countries in the region, according to the timing and convenience of the United States. The first agreement was signed with Canada, followed by the North American Free Trade Agreement, our NAFTA. Since NAFTA was being negotiated, 
a partial defective and hasty negotiation by the Mexican part was clearly perceived. For Mexican negotiators, we decided to reach an agreement, no matter what quality of an agreement, before the July elections and before the new administration took office on December the 1st. Thus, NAFTA left white sectors of Mexican agriculture, industry, and services unprotected in face of their foreign competitors, and Mexican economy became more rigidly subordinated to the U.S. economy. Since then, I proposed for the first time before the British Columbia Federation of Labor in Vancouver that instead of only a free trade agreement and only between the three countries of North America, a continental agreement on trade and development should be subscribed in which several mechanisms for real integration and cooperation could be contemplated like investment funds oriented to reduce or eliminate existing asymmetries between the different economies so an equitable trade basis for a fair competitiveness could be created, a social charter so labor conditions would tend to become similar in every country, and an environmental agreement which only a right forcibly and not as complete as necessary as a complement to NAFTA through the so-called parallel agreements. Ten years of experience show that transforming NAFTA into a continental development agreement is still a desirable alternative, which would open real possibilities of social enhancement and economic growth, as well as equitable conditions for the multiple and always increasing exchanges between the different countries of our continent. Ten years after NAFTA became in force, results have been good in Mexico in certain areas, bad or very bad in others. In this decade, for example, trilateral trade has more than doubled. It has increased 117%, and Mexican exports have more than tripled during this period, going from $52 billion in 1993 to 165 in 2003, which may be seen as a positive impact of NAFTA but most of those exports correspond to foreign oil maquilanoras established in Mexico and to internal trade, trade of transnational corporations. It is easier to correctly appreciate Mexico's situation if we consider that, that in 1983, of every export dollar, 88 cents corresponded to national inputs, labor, services, raw materials, parts, components. In 1994, this figure fell to 42 cents, and today it may, reach, it may not reach 25. The economy has become disarticulate, erratic, unstable, and slow, writes David Marquez Ayala, a renowned Mexican economist, subordinated to external forces out of its control and to, corporate in, and to the corporate invasion, and the corporate invasion has been overwhelming, as well as foreign control of the basic productive plant. Foreign trade shows certainly an impressive quantitative growth being a rea statistic reality and at the same time an economic fallacy because it's not really our trade but an economy functioning more and more as a maquilador center, way station or platform for internal trade of international corporations which carry on for themselves most of transactions. End of the quote. NAFTA which practically erased every limitation to investment, provoked a productive denationalization, probably the gravest effect of an, of an indiscriminate opening, which started a little before and accelerated after NAFTA became in force. With NAFTA, 
writes the same Marquez Ayala, the government gave the rank of international commitments to three enormous absurdities. A complete opening to transnational capital, which would lead to displacement or sale of thousands of Mexican enterprises, the regulation in a high scale, which literally delivered the country to corporate oligopolies, giving carte blanche to speculative capital, and by accepting the clause of national treatment to foreign capital, the government is prevented to implement any policy or measure in favor of Mexican enterprises over foreign, like government purchases, contracts, or concessions. Even more, these measures were not limited to NAFTA's partners, but were extended, as new agreements were signed, to every possible country. It seems the government was urged to make changes irreversible to leave the country unarmed." End of the quote. In 2000, Mexican exports reached their historical maximum, $166 billion. In 2003, they showed a small 0.7% decrease, but excluding oil, this figure goes to a 2.2% decrease, and if maquiladora exports are not considered, we find Mexican exports reduced 17% between 2000 and 2003. On the other hand, between 1994 and 2003, Mexican exports increased annually 11.9%, less than in the decade previous to NAFTA enforcement when, they, the, when the increase reached 15.1%. Seen from the other side of the border, Mexican imports in the United States between 1994 and 2003 grew annually 12%. From 94 to 2000, the yearly increased rate was 18.2%, drastically falling the, during the last three years of the decade, 2000-2003, to 0.3%, and if oil is excluded, the rate becomes minus 0.7%, that is negative, which means that even if there exists a tariff preference as NAFTA partners and Mexico shares a 2,000-mile border with the United States, Mexico is losing its U.S. markets. The value of exports reduced between 2000 and 2003 in important sectors of the Mexican economy, like automobiles, falling from $15.7 billion in 2000 to 118 in 2003. Clothes and cotton products from 5.4 to 4.6. Television and video equipment from 7.6 to 7.0. Computer accessories and parts from 6.2 to 3.6. The loss of dynamism of Mexican economy may be observed comparing the exports annual growth rates during the periods 1994-2000 and 2000-2003, when this rate fell from 23.7 to 7.7 for, for, for measurement instruments, photographic equipment from 25 to 9, metal manufacturers from 30 to 0.4, other automobile complete or assembled from 39 to 12, furniture and household goods from 19 to 0.2, to illustrate with some examples. Direct foreign investment increased from a yearly average rate of $1.9 billion during the period 1984-1993 to $7 billion between 94 and 2002. This increase corresponds mainly to U.S. investments. Investments from other countries kept stable. 
$35 billion from 1984 to 1993, and $35.4 billion from 1994 to 2002. These figures reinforce the idea NAFTA didn't make Mexico attractive to foreign investors from outside the area who preferred China, India, Brazil, or Australia for, the new, for their new ventures. During these last years, U.S. demand and investment have lost their capacity to stimulate Mexican economy, which has not been successful in competing with exporters from China, India, Japan, or from the recent member states of the European Union, like the Czech Republic, Malta, Slovenia, Slovakia, or Estonia. In agriculture, opening seriously affected cereal, bean, vegetable oils, sugar, milk, and cattle producers, even if it must be recognized Vegetables, cement, beer, tequila, and fruits like mango, avocado, guava, lemon, and blackberry, among others, have gained new markets. Undoubtedly, basic grains, that's corn, beans, and wheat, producers have been the most affected. Imports of these grains during the 85-93 period reached, reached 29 million metric tons. After NAFTA became in force, these imports raised to 63.3 million tons, an increase of 123% in the period 94-2002. Making the same comparison, imports of oil seeds increased 155% and of sorghum and other animal foods 67%. NAFTA is the only free trade agreement that liberalized the trade of agricultural products. Mexico has subscribed more than 10 agreements since 1994 and in none of them is considered the liberalization of this kind of products. The most serious social effects of trade opening is growing poverty and the enormous increase of migration towards the United States. At least three million migrants have crossed the border in the last decade to work and most of them to establish permanently in the United States. Population of Mexican origin in the US reaches already between 25 and 27 million who are sending around $15 billion annually to Mexico, a fact received with joy by the government, which refuses to recognize it as one of the most indicative and worrisome of Mexico's social situation, as it shows incapacity and lack of will by the government to solve in Mexico the life problems of millions of Mexicans. But not everything negative must be attributed to NAFTA. Much of it is a consequence of what should and could be done in Mexico mainly by the government, and was not done. For example, during the years NAFTA was being negotiated, a consistent effort to modernize or reorient the country's productive structures would have been essential to create competitive conditions for Mexican producers, considering the foreseeable effects of opening the country to foreign trade. Agriculture was simply abandoned, as happened to small and medium enterprise, provoking an accelerated rise of unemployment and migration. Infrastructure investment and the possibility of credit were drastically reduced. Development banks disappeared, or those that were left reduced their operations to a minimum. Technical assistance services were eliminated. Land tenure legislation was reformed, forcing thousands of small landholders to abandon or sell their lands. Instead of increasing investments, offering credit, strengthening technical assistance, organizing producers, and stimulating the integration of productive chains. We now face the need of revising NAFTA, 
according to the terms established in the agreement itself and to Mexican legislation, particularly Chapter 4, Article 29 of the Foreign Trade Law, in those areas or in regard to those products in which there exists damage or risk of damage to national production, which can be clearly demonstrated considering the fall of agricultural products, the thousands of bankruptcies of industrial and service businesses, the decrease in the population's income, the abandoned fields, and the increasing migration to the north. Considering NAFTA is exhausted and gave what it could give, the Mexican government should propose its two NAFTA partners, the signature of a trilateral cooperation addendum to NAFTA, which would commit the three parties in a cooperation effort not only in trade, but also in social areas, production, infrastructure, having its main goal the elimination of social differences and economic asymmetries, as well as the creation of mechanisms like special funds for development, following the European example, to give reality to these new policies. There is a new threat over Mexico and Latin America. The Free Trade Area of the Americas project, proposed by President Bush, now the junior, which, as it's planned, would only make Latin American economies subordination to the U.S. economy much more rigid and would consolidate in the long term maquila with a low technological content as the industrialization pattern in the southern countries, condemning them for a long, long time to be sources of cheap labor, both internally and for the northern economies, and to ever precarious living standards for the population. The free trade area of the Americas is not the first attempt of the United States to formalize the acceptance of its continental domination. Back in 1883, the United States government proposed a free trade agreement to the Mexican government. And in the 1890 Washington Pan-American Conference, the US government made the proposal of a continental free trade agreement, trying then to introduce what was called the arbitration clause, equivalent to the democratic clause of the Enterprise of the Americas Initiative, that is, the author authorization to the United States to intervene in domestic affairs of the Latin American countries. We must be aware, considering the difficulties to implement and put into practice the free trade area agreement as other projects underway are moving opposite to its aims, Mercosur, the Andean Pact, or the Latin American economic system, the United States government is trying to freeze or erode these projects by promoting regional economic projects like the Puebla-Panama Plan and the Regional Andean Initiative, which propose, with the Enterprise of the Americas vision, to homologate the existing trade agreements to facilitate the administration of the agreements, which would, which would mean to standardize Latin American economies to the lowest, to condemn the region to an endemic poverty, and to cancel political integration projects conceived on an egalitarian basis. On the other hand, with the same aims, the United States government supports military projects like the Colombia Plan. The main conditions Latin American countries have to meet to assure progress in the long term is to integrate politically and economically and diversify their trade, but not as these processes are conceived and promoted by the dominating interests in politics and finance in the United States. Latin America and the Caribbean countries must promote their political and economic integration as the Latin American and Caribbean community, expanding, expanding the recently created South American Community of Nations and establish a fair cooperation relationship with the countries in the North 
that is the United States and Canada and in general with the rest of the world. Latin America must profit from these experiences globalization offers. The countries or blocks of countries which have benefited from these processes have not, and have not received the negative effects under developed countries have are those with vigorous markets as the result of having a large population with a high consumption capacity, a vast territory, a solid integrated and diversified productive structure, those generating knowledge and technological progress as the United States, the European Union, China which, which is following their path, Russia, Japan and the Southeastern Asian countries which at the same time generate and participate in globalization processes and benefit from their positive effects. Practice, if not an ideal, at least much, a much more consistent social and economic internal policy which open the opportunity for them to have solid and expanding internal markets and dispose of sufficient resources to meet social and development needs. During the 10 years NAFTA has been in force, Mexico observes important social and political changes, showing pro progress in some cases and moving backwards in others. On January 1st, 1994, precisely the day NAFTA became in force, the Zapatista Army of National Liberation upheaval broke. At the end of that same year, a few days after the new government had taken office, the economy collapsed. In 1995, Mexican economy decreased by 7% of the gross domestic product. Discredit of the new administration and growing political and social instability led the government to try to diminish pressures by liberalizing the political system. In 1996, electoral authority was granted autonomy and the possibility opened to elect the next year, for the first time in Mexican history, the governor of the federal district, that is, the chief of government of major or mayor of Mexico City. With the outcome of the 1997 federal election, for the first time too, the official party, the PRI, besides losing the government of the federal district, lost its absolute majority in the Chamber of Deputies, our lower chamber. Today, no party has absolute majority in any of both chambers, deputies and senators. In 2000, political alternation arrived, the PRI losing the presidency and its in its hands since 1946. With alternation, the party of state regime ended, representing a significant political progress. Majority vote in, in July 2000 had the aim of ousting the pre from power, but carried with it many more hopes, new job opportunities, higher family incomes, a better education and better health care, a growing economy, an effective combat against poverty security, a firm combat against corruption and delinquency. Four years of the alternation government have passed and even if the party of state regime was ousted and recognizing we now have an enhanced electoral democracy, results fall on the side, on the side of debit, that is, of needs and sufficiencies and incapacities and not on the side of credit. <coughs> the government recognizes the number of Mexicans under the poverty line has increased, reaching today two-thirds of total population. During the four years of the present administration, according to official data, over 400,000 formal jobs have been lost and there has been no capacity to create 1.3 million jobs demanded annually, accumulating a 4 million deficit, which must add to the previous unsatisfied demand 
some place over 50% of our total labor force. Purchasing power of wages has fallen at least 20% in the same period, and the economy has been stagnant since 2001. Since neoliberal policies were imposed over two decades ago, and Mexico has applied them with rigorous orthodoxy, voices from the government have been saying there is no other alternative for the country to find a way to solve its problems. That any other policy not keeping strictly to the Washington consensus would provoke major economic imbalances accompanied by social and political disturbances, even if, as is beginning to be widely recognized, it is neoliberal policies which incubate those possible disturbances by concentrating wealth in the very few, keeping the economy stagnant, increasing economic and social asymmetries within the country and internationally, generating unemployment and expanding poverty. The first unavoidable step to consistently advance in the solution of the nation's problems is, is to recover the capacity to, to make sovereign decisions and to implement public policies according to the country's and the majority of the population's interests. During the last years, neoliberal models are being discarded in different countries, and it's generally recognized developed nations never applied them rigorously. Strong nations protect their producers and pay attention, at the same time, to social problems and to stimulate economic growth. They try to avoid conflicts. It's time then, under developed countries follow the same path, change the development patterns, and propose the creation of a new world order without hegemonies, just and equitable, which favors solidary cooperation and guarantees peace and progress. Internally in Mexico, it's necessary to fulfill the San Andres agreements subscribed by, in 1996 by the Zapatista army and the government, government, which disavowed the signatures of its representatives, did not keep to the agreements, and left latent the state of war officially recognized. It's necessary to deepen reforms and modernize the state by democratizing the executive and the exercise of power, to develop an equitable federalism, a judicial reform which guarantees a fair and effective justice, a system of real protection of human and social rights, so these may be fully respected, respected and exercised with no limitation. A new policy of economic growth is required, stimulating productive investment, implementing a fiscal reform which renders resources enough demanded by development, reorienting oil policy to industrialize the resource within the country and directed by public interest, giving priority to job creation, the best, the best way to have a fair distribution of wealth, incorporating scientific and technological progress to the productive structures, and enhancing the quality of education. Mexico claims for the modern and strong state, sustained by legitimacy and moral authority, stemmed from obeying and enforcing the law, by the efficiency of the services it's obliged to provide, and by opening effective opportunities of progress for society. Mexico is demanding changes in its economic model and to reorient its public policies according to the nation's and the people's interests. These changes will be possible if a political majority is created to make them democratically viable and to carry them on. It's not an easy task. In the present conditions, the majority can only be formed if, he, if it has a solid support in a political and programmatic platform capable of convoking an ample plurality which sums and transcends political parties and social organizations and incorporates to political action significant sectors of society. After this period of stagnation and, and sterile confrontation, the country is demanding a firm political conduction 
with course and initiative. It's also claiming for prudence and serenity to conciliate positions, overcome obstacles, and progress socially and economically, as well as politically and in culture, keeping to principles and respecting the people's democratic mandate. This is how I visualize Mexico and after 10 years of NAFTA enforcement and as the country goes deeper in the, into the 21st century, struggling for its sovereignty, opening the way to a participative democracy and to really become a generous country with its people. Thank you. Thank you. Um, we have some time for questions now. Um, we have a microphone up here in the front and uh, you can line up in front of it if you wish to make your questions. I will only make one request and that is that you uh, state your questions uh, briefly and that you uh, limit yourself uh, if possible only to questions um, and not to statements to give uh, as many uh, members of the public an opportunity to answer their questions. Uh, so um, we can start uh, with the microphone over here uh, if anybody would like to ask any questions. Good evening. Uh, I'm interested to, to hear more specific because what you have been doing today is practically a very broad critique about the neoliberal policy today in practically around the world. My concern is that on the one side, when I was in town there, I was thinking, wait, what is he talking about? He's attacking the new opening of the liberal economy. On the other side, we are talking about protecting our economy. So are you talking about in the middle, protection against in the economy that probably from my point of view, they don't have a room of maneuver, protectionist economy practically in a global condition, they are really poor achievement. So I like to really understand because it's the, the speech that you have appear in some way the populist one again, and I'm concerned about that because in Latin America I have not been here from you. Uh, what is the coalition at the, in order to have a really reorganization of the forces of Latin America in order to face uh, United States uh, predominion in the, uh, in the economy of the international market. So i really like to, to hear more about that. Well, I'm not uh, attacking the opening of the economy, the opening of uh, Mexico to foreign trade, but uh, I think that the way it was done was not the best for the, for the country of, and for uh, stimulating Mexican economy and stimulating the increase of uh, production and the diversification of production. Uh, uh, Mexico didn't uh, uh, profit, didn't use the, the several years when NAFTA was being negotiated to modernize its economy and to compete in much uh, better conditions in, uh, uh, when the economy was uh, going to be open. So this is what I, what I really criticize, that uh, we didn't uh, do what we had to do, that has nothing, uh, nothing to do specifically with the negotiations of NAFTA, but what was not done during the time of negotiations and what hasn't been done during the 10 years of NAFTA being in force. 
Mexico has not uh, made an important effort to integrate its, uh, its uh, productive chains. It uh, hasn't made uh, no uh, effort to uh, integrate maquila to the Mexican economy. And that would have created uh, jobs in Mexico that would have stimulated uh, regional, uh, uh, regional economies. And I'm not thinking of uh, uh, protectionism in the old uh, way, that, that, uh, or, the, or, or uh, 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 keeping Mexico from participating in, the, in different uh, integration processes. On, on the contrary, I think we must participate much more actively, but trying to, to uh, profit of the advantages we can get from this uh, participation in NAFTA. Uh, I think we must uh, uh, do an effort, and Mexico sh should be a very active promoter of uh, integration with uh, Latin American and the Caribbean countries. So we could also form a, a large uh, uh, population and economic bloc that would uh, uh, be in a, a much better condition to to compete and to cooperate with the large economic and population blocks like the United States or the European Union or China. That's what we, we think should be, should be done. And, and uh, this doesn't, uh, uh, doesn't mean that we must uh, 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 go back to uh, what protectionism was in, in the 60s or 70s. On the contrary, we must participate in this uh, new integration processes we are living, but uh, uh, not disregarding uh, Mexico's uh, social conditions and not uh, uh, keeping Mexico from, from facing and trying to uh, give solution to the different problems we are living. That's, that's, what, uh, I have, uh, that's what I've been proposing and that's what I think I said in this uh, a few moments ago. You can come up to the front. Um, it was really an interesting um, presentation that you did today. Me, nothing in Canada. Sometimes it was a little bit hard for me to understand. However, um, my uh, my family's from Morelia, uh, Michoacan, and we go every year or every two, three years. And what I do understand is when I see in uh, downtown in the beautiful colonial district, I see a Burger King set up. You know, it's so disturbing. I was there the year the Burger King came there. Then I see McDonald's. I go to Blockbuster, and I see there's a little section called the Mexican section, and they're talking, you know. So I mean, I see, I see um, the effects of what you're talking about, what I would call, you know, imperialism in Mexico. And I agree with everything you said. The question is, how do you, how do we get to that point? How do you, the Mexican people, how do you get to that point? I think that you and the PRD did what, what you tried to do. You, you had an election, and you were the clear victor. And the election was stolen, as we are all familiar with what happens here as well. So I want to know why. It was disturbing for me that it occurred here and in Mexico. Why didn't you protest more? Why didn't the people of Mexico protest more? You would have been the president. We could have implemented all these wonderful things if, if there had been a fair democratic election, but it was stolen. So I want to understand when an election is stolen and we don't do anything about it, where do we go from there? Well, we did what we could in, in 88. There were important uh, mobilizations. There were important demonstrations in different parts of the country. But we couldn't revert uh, the fraud. And we had no capacity of doing it. So we decided to organize a political force. That's, from, uh, that's uh, how the PRD was created. 
we, uh, well, we had to uh, work more time. We had to make an effort that uh, is taking more time than we uh, would have liked. And that's what we've been doing, uh, working politically to uh, trying to, uh, to implement a different project in Mexico. But uh, in 88, well, there were big demonstrations. We used every resource the law uh, offered us, but we couldn't revert the, the, the fraud. And that's what I can say. Uh, nobody was prepared for an armed movement. Nobody was uh, prepared for a revolution. That's not just a... A voluntaristic decision, a, vo a revolution is prepared and nobody thought of uh, using uh, any uh, means that were not constitutional. So we decided to create a political force and this is the PRD and this is how we've been working in Mexico trying to change things, doing it politically and not through any other means. Uh, after losing the election in 88, you say that you reorganized the, the, the left and that loose coalition that you had into the PRD. And in, uh, in 94, uh, what was probably a, a much more transparent election, Sevilla prevailed. And then in 2000, again, uh, the Mexican people chose to go to the right as opposed to keeping the PRI in, in, in power anymore. How do you plan in 2006 to talk to the Mexican people in a different way that will see you or whoever comes out of the left as the most reasonable, exciting, uh, and viable option for, for, for change in Mexico. I was very glad and, and happy to see that you're running again in 2006, but, but thinking about the past two elections in particular, how do you think that you should approach this one differently? Well, the, <laughs> the country's conditions are different. The situation of the country is different. Uh, we have to, well, we, we're trying to uh, make a proposal that uh, may be seen as viable by a majority in Mexico, a proposal that becomes attractive, a proposal that uh, in which people uh, consider they can participate in its uh, implementation. On the other hand, uh, uh, we think that this proposal will uh, show the different coincidences with different sectors of the population, not only within the party or not only members of the, of the, part of the PRD or other uh, parties who could join a, a coalition, but uh, uh, trying to uh, make uh, explicit the, the the coincidences with other uh, sectors of the of the of society, that's with uh, with uh, uh, people from uh, enterprise, from business, uh, with uh, wor organized workers, with peasants, with women. Uh, I mean, uh, trying. That is how I think we can build a new uh, majority, a political majority uh, for 2006, and uh, mainly. Uh, organized or convoked through a, through a proposal that uh, may seem viable to many people of, uh, of uh, implementing in, in the next uh, six years, from 2006 to 2012. That's the way. I have a related question. Um, I was fortunate to be in Mexico in July of 2002 witnessed the euphoria 
of the people um, after the election when, when uh, Pre was ousted. And thinking about the subsequent, subsequent gains of the Pre uh, in local elections and about a lot of the uh, backlash that seems to be developing against Fox and, uh, and the pawn, um, is this an opportunity? Uh, do you think there will be a significant swing to the left? Uh, do you think that the 2000 election really sort of busted open the door in terms of realistic options for democracy or, um, you know, it's criminal for me to even suggest this, but, but is this um, sort of, uh, do you think it's more likely that there will be a return to the pre in terms of at least uh, having a, d a government that's productive if not necessarily democratic? Well, I think the, the, the 2006 election will be a very important test to, the, to, our electoral, uh, to our electoral democracy, to our electoral system. I expect we have a, a fair election. I, I expect we have a transparent and clean election in 2006. And that, this will prove that we have a much better electoral system. Uh, I, wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't expect... Uh, uh, to repeat the experiences of 1988 or any other uh, of uh, an electoral fraud or, or uh, an electoral mani or, or a government manipulation of the of the elections. Uh, on the other hand, well, I think we have to consider that the PRI is still a powerful apparatus. Uh, the PRI is uh, an existing, a real uh, political force. It has the government of uh, two thirds of the states in in Mexico. And, well, there, there is the, the risk, I would say, of the pre uh, uh, going back to government. That depends on the capacity other forces, and particularly democratic and progressive forces, have to convince people that uh, the most uh, convenient uh, government, the most convenient proposal is uh, that of the, of the progressive forces in Mexico. But, uh, well, that's uh, what we have to work on and uh, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, particularly I'm, I'm optimistic that uh, we may really turn the vote to a progressive uh, uh, position, but well, we'll have to see what happens on July 2006. You spoke of the importance of economic integration um, among the countries that make up the Latin Caribbean community, and I was wondering now with the experience that you've had with the 10 years of seeing the implications of NAFTA, what advice you could offer to countries that are currently negotiating with the United States and their, their own free trade agreements in, instead of ALCA, uh, what, what advice you could offer them in countries like Colombia, Peru, and Ecuador that are currently trying to negotiate these, these agreements that have serious consequences for their populations? Well, I think that uh, what uh, I, I should say is that uh, uh, these countries, as, Mex as Mexico should have done, must uh, uh, try to reduce the, the differences they have in their economies regarding the, the economy of the United States. And that uh, cannot be done only by signing a free trade agreement. If there uh, are not other mechanisms, like those uh, uh, used in Europe, to integrate countries with a, a less, uh, a lower relative uh, development like uh, Greece, uh, Portugal, or Spain, 
where there were in investments from the, from the uh, more developed countries uh, directed to these uh, other countries so they could uh, participate in a much uh, more equitable condition in this integration process. I think the, the experience we have in, in, in NAFTA shows that uh, uh, only a free trade doesn't uh, uh, really uh, improve uh, uh, economic conditions if there, uh, if there are not internal and uh, national measures taken uh, specifically to uh, modernize uh, productive structures and to make the, country, the, pro the national producers competitive uh, in regard to uh, foreign producers. And uh, this, in, uh, I think, in Latin America cannot be done if there are not mechanisms like this uh, investment funds uh, like those used in Europe to uh, reduce the differences, to reduce the asymmetries between the largest economies and those with less uh, development. I think this is what could be, what I could say regarding the uh, agreements that are being negotiated or the new agreements that uh, are, uh, well, that will be uh, subscribed in this recent times. Hello. Uh, if the 2000 election seemed like a celebration of democracy, it seems like the uh, following elections in, in Mexico have been a very slow funeral, disenchantment uh, from the voters, low voter turnout, uh, political infighting between the parties, the PRD, the scandal with uh, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador. Uh, how do, do you think there's a, do you propose any reforms for the political parties themselves or the, the party system in Mexico to reduce their own infighting and that the deputies actually work for the good of the country and not necessarily for the good of the party? What would you propose? Would you propose something like uh, Jorge Castaneda who calls himself the citizen candidate or something different? Well, I think you, you have to deal with, with, with realities and you cannot, uh, just uh, change things as uh, any of us would, would like. I think that uh, we'll, we'll have to continue uh, w uh, well working and, and having a, a Congress uh, that uh, will not uh, have an absolute majority, that this uh, uh, demands uh, capacity and will to negotiate to uh, bring uh, uh, different positions closer where you can uh, uh, consile uh, positions, where you can uh, find uh, coincidences. But uh, no, I, I think, uh, well, I would like that uh, my party in particular uh, would, would be were in, in, in a better condition, that we wouldn't have internal uh, uh, confrontations, that the party would be uh, working on its, uh, to improve its organization, to incorporate new members, etc. But, uh, well, that's uh, what I would like my party to be doing, but uh, I think we have to face reality. The party's not doing that. I think we are facing a, a difficult uh, situation in, uh, regarding the, what the, the PRD. I don't, uh, I don't see the other parties doing uh, uh, other things very different. Uh, but, uh, no, I won't, I won't, I won't uh, be uh, thinking that the solution to Mexico's problems is a candidate like Jorge Castañeda. If I uh, thought that, well, I would be supporting him. <laughs> Two brief questions. Um, first of all, um, 
how do you see education in in the role of education, higher education in this? Because it seems like uh, UNAM, you know, I have friends who went there, and it's really corrupted, and there's a lot of problems with that public education. And how do you see um, places like um, take the Monterrey, you know, being renowned and being a private elitist uh, institution, keeping the knowledge, you know, cocoon in certain spots in Mexican um, progress. But how do you see how do you see the role of education in advancing Mexico and its economy? Because it seems like it's falling apart. And um, my other brief question is how do you see China? I read some articles about China um, going to Cuba and going to certain certain countries in in, in uh, South America, trying to make agreements. I know Mexico is not too happy with China; it's more like an economic rival. How do you see the role of China in the future, competing with Mexico and Latin America? Well, I'm, I'm convinced that we have to, in the case of Mexico, we have to uh, improve the quality of education in every grade, from the lowest to the highest. I wouldn't agree with you that uh, UNAM is a, a corrupted institution. I, wouldn't, I would not agree with you. I think it's uh, an institution of excellence in many of its uh, activities. Uh, I'm uh, convinced that uh, education uh, must be seen as uh, part of the effort to, to uh, uh, open uh, to, to, to social justice in, in the case of Mexico, and at the same time as a very important support of economic uh, development and economic growth. I think it, it plays uh, uh, both uh, roles. And uh, I see China as I think we are all seeing China very aggressive in uh, uh, gaining new markets, in, uh, <coughs> in uh, obtaining new technology, in, uh, improve, in increasing its uh, economic uh, uh, opportunities. And well, I think that China is uh, a, new, a new power, and we must uh, understand that it's a new power. And it w it's always difficult to compete with uh, uh, nations that, uh, as China, have been making a very, very important, consistent effort to, uh, of uh, economic uh, development and of uh, social improvement. So I think we should, uh, in many ways, uh, try to do what they are doing, try to uh, incorporate uh, technology and scientific progress to our productive uh, uh, apparatus, that we should uh, improve uh, education, open the possibilities of, of a much uh, uh, higher quality education in every level in, in, in Mexico, and uh, that's what we should be uh, doing, and not only, uh, well, uh, seeing China as a competitor. Maybe there's something to learn of them of what they're doing right now. We wanted to welcome you to the university and also note the fact that your arrival here brings a lot of people from the Mexican community into the university. So my question is, how do you view now the role of the Mexican community, Mexican immigrant community in the United States with respect to developments in Mexico? We know that when you were here in the late 1980s, the enormous reception that you received here in Chicago alerted politicians of other political parties in Mexico <coughs> that they ought to be paying attention to Mexicans outside Mexico. 
And that is only accelerated. We know recently Consul Sada tells us that nine Mexican governors all came here together some, a couple of months ago to visit their constituents. So how do you see the role of the community here, politically, economically, socially, in influencing what's happening back home? Well, I see the Mexican community here in, in, in Chicago, in the Chicago area, very, very active. I uh, know of very successful people of this, uh, of this community. Uh, I know they are very, uh, they help very much uh, Mexicans that come to this uh, area. They, they open opportunities for them. And that uh, there's a very important contribution of, uh, of Mexicans, not only in this area, but uh, as uh, you well know, a very important uh, contribution of Mexicans working in the United States uh, through the particularly through the remittances they sent uh, to, to their families. Uh, to Mexico's development. So I see a very active community, uh, uh, maybe much more active than Mexican communities in other parts of the United States. And well, that's what I find here in Chicago. Hi, um, you mentioned the protection going on in developed countries. I'm reminded especially of the agricultural protection we have here in the United States that's hurt the Mexican economy. and. Um, that's recently been challenged in the WTO, um, notably by Brazil. And I was wondering what, aside from, from trying to get a more integrated Latin American economy to challenge U.S. dominance, um, I was wondering if, if there was any moves that either the Mexican government is making now or that your proposal would make to challenge <coughs> this type of protection. Um, the agricultural protection in the United States that's hurt so many poorer countries? Well, as, as you know, uh, <coughs> agriculture here is, is uh, one of the more subsidized uh, uh, sectors. And uh, well, that uh, makes uh, it very difficult to compete with this, uh, with this agriculture. Uh, as you well know, too, uh, in Europe, uh, all the agreements on in the European Union, all the agreements on agriculture are those that, that have taken uh, the, the, the longest time to, to be definite. In many cases, they still are uh, negotiating their, their, their in, in the, uh, regard to agricultural products. So <coughs> what we must, uh, what I think we, we should uh, establish is that there are, uh, there, there is uh, uh, damage uh, to Mexican production and to Mexican economy by the way uh, uh, Mexico opened its trade, on, especially on, on basic, uh, basic grains, that's uh, corn, wheat, and beans. And uh, that in this particular, at least in this particular, uh, uh, regarding these particular products, NAFTA should be revised. So we could uh, at least uh, give time to modernize the culture of these products, and we could uh, uh, well, offer better conditions to those producers that are working particularly on this, on this, uh, on this, uh, on this product, uh, basic grains. Thank you. Bienvenido, gobernador. Um, now I'm going to English. Basically, I would love to speak Spanish, but I know that there are a lot of more prominence in English <coughs> here. But 
let's, I'd like to transfer ourselves to the year 2006. You have just awakened in the morning and found out you are the president of Mexico. And I certainly will vote for you. Um, and you find yourself with a very special invitation from President Bush. I, as a Mexicana, first of all, and a citizen of this country, am very appalled and very upset over the undocumented issue and the immigration laws and the terrorism and all the drama that, that President Bush has caused with all his lies. So I look to you as someone who might add that difference that President Fox has not been able to do. And I, I, I want to see it open. I want to see blood, you know? That's, now that's me because I see so much indifference and I see like, let's relax, Bush will come out, Bush will come around, we'll get the liberals, we'll get the Democrats, and we'll see no action. But along comes Cuauhtémoc Cárdenas. What does he have to say about the issue of the undocumented worker, the issues that pertain to, the, to them and to the immigration and to this, uh, this thing called terrorism? How do you answer to Bush and how can we change this? Because after all, we know that the terrorists are not our people. We know that this country survives on the working and the working is the Mexicano. The Latinoamericano. That's how this country survives. And we need you, along with our support here in this country, to give a different solution or even a better solution. Thank you. Well, I, I think <coughs> the, the Mexican government <coughs> has to be, uh, has to be very insistent in uh, the recognition by the U.S. government and uh, the U.S. society of the contribution Mexicans and in general migrants uh, give to the progress of this country. Uh, if, we, uh, if we get uh, uh, to uh, make this conscious in this country that uh, Mexicans and many other uh, migrants here are really contributing to the uh, progress of this country, regardless if they have documents or they have no documents, if their uh, migratory situation is regular or not. Uh, if, we, if we can really uh, make this, uh, this country conscious of this contribution, well, many things will change. I think this, it's not, uh, uh, not confrontation but uh, trying to convince, trying to uh, explain, trying to reason with the uh, authorities and with the uh, different uh, uh, se sectors and people who make opinion here in the United States of the importance and the, uh, of this contribution because people work here, they contribute to the progress of this country, they are paying taxes, uh, they're, uh, well, they're in uh, legal and uh, uh, positive uh, actions and activities. Well, if we really uh, can uh, make this country conscious of the, of the importance and the value of this contribution, well, I think, uh, I think that uh, things will start to change. I don't think that uh, the way to uh, improve 
the condition of migrants in this country is through confrontation. I think it's more than it's more the, the use of reason, the use of the solid arguments, the uh, effort that the Mexican government has to do with different sectors, not only with the government, but of different sectors of society, with business people, with uh, universities, with uh, I mean, with, with society in general, but not through confrontation, but uh, mainly through reason. And that's, uh, that's uh, an effort that will uh, take a long time. I don't see, I don't see that uh, this will change, uh, that things may, uh, may change in a short term. It will take time, but I think that's the, the way to, to deal with this problem of Mexicans and in general migrants here in the United States. Ingeniero. Um, well, Susan, uh, a little bit of my question. I also wanted to ask you for the role of uh, Mexicans, but let me put it this way. Back in 1983, when we were here, only about 400,000 Mexicans or so, we lobbied so hard and worked so hard against NAFTA that we even pushed our congressmen, only Latino congressmen in the Midwest, Luis Gutierrez, to vote in Congress against NAFTA. Now, today we are about one and a half million just here in Chicago and surrounding cities. And, uh, or, or at least we were, you know, five years ago when the census, uh, it's been said that Chicago is the fifth largest city or the city with more Mexicans in the world. We are dealing with both in that sense, you know, we're bringing more people here. Uh, now, given that we are almost the triple we were 11 years ago. Given the possibility, at least, of voting in the year 2000 as Mexicans abroad for president, which I think it would strengthen and you know be a, a cohesive element uh, for the uh, Latino Mexican community here, what do you think our role should be as Mexicans in the United States? Many of us citizens of the United States as well as citizens of Mexico. I mean, if, uh, given the, the possibility of uh, renegotiating or reviewing NAFTA, uh, what our role would be, not, not as money senders to Mexico, you know, as, as the fifth city with more Mexicans in the world, what our role would be. And, and in that sense, uh, talking about our strength, if you were to be the uh, PRD candidate for the Mexican presidency, would you be willing to push all you could so migrant Mexicans could have diputados and senadores, even if the law doesn't say so? First, I think we should uh, uh, remember that uh, in uh, uh, when Cedillo uh, took office in 1994, one of his uh, offers was to uh, uh, give way to the, the initiatives that would allow Mexicans, uh, Mex Mexican citizens, uh, uh, being uh, out of Mexico, to vote in, in the 2000 federal election. This uh, initiative was finally opposed by the pre-Gutierrez uh, uh, 
group in, the, in, the, in Congress. And in the, I don't remember exactly if it was 2001 or, or 2002, but the same initiative was presented in Congress uh, now during the Fox uh, administration. And now it was uh, blocked by the PAN uh, uh, group uh, in, in Congress. I would expect that uh, this uh, commitment of the Mexican government, institutional uh, commitment, I would say, uh, could be uh, uh, finally approved this initiative in this uh, next uh, legislative period of, uh, of this year. And uh, uh, maybe uh, if uh, things uh, are worked hard and very consciously, uh, we could have the Mexicans uh, uh, being abroad voting in the next election, even if it's difficult to, to implement in practice the way to organize these elections, this election particularly, as you, as you well know here in the, in the United States, because the number of Mexicans and the, uh, uh, the distribution of Mexicans here in the United States, they're all over the country, uh, maybe we were talking uh, at the reception before this uh, talk here, we were talking of uh, maybe two, three million voting, not the 10 or 12 million who have the right to vote. But, uh, and that would be a, a, a complicated, at least, uh, uh, election to organize. But if uh, the, this uh, uh, initiative could be approved, that's the, how, how to regulate, how to vote, how Mexicans could vote uh, being abroad, maybe uh, we could uh, have uh, Mexicans uh, voting, Mexicans ab abroad voting in this 2006 election. I would hope that this, uh, this could, could happen and uh, I think we'll, uh, I, I'm sure that uh, at least the PRD will be trying to push this uh, initiative so it may be approved in this uh, next uh, legislative period that opens on February the 1st. Uh, what, what would, uh, what's, the, what's the role of Mexicans uh, here in the United States regarding NAFTA or the, or the revision of NAFTA? Well, I would think that uh, it should uh, mostly uh, center in demanding that NAFTA uh, uh, doesn't continue to be only a free trade agreement or, or not only uh, uh, using the same mechanisms it has been using since 1994 up to now. But that uh, uh, if we really want a much uh, better cooperation between our two countries, that uh, an uh, addendum should be, should be uh, proposed. So uh, at least uh, uh, investment funds to uh, make uh, Mexican producers more competitive regarding Canadian and American producers uh, uh, could be, uh, if, if that could be uh, uh, reached, if we, if we could do that. That's uh, at least uh, create this uh, investment funds so we could reduce the asymmetry, uh, the existing asymmetry between American and uh, uh, Mexican economy. And uh, we could uh, open the possibility for a much uh, uh, better operation, a much better integration of Mexican economy so we could have uh, better competitive conditions uh, regarding the, well, the, 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 col the collaboration or the, uh, 
the participation of Mexico in uh, international trade, and particularly in uh, U.S. and Canadian markets. This, I, I think, would, could be one of the uh, main demands of Mexicans here in the United States to ask for, to demand for an uh, addendum of, uh, of NAFTA, so uh, at least uh, this investment funds would, could be created, so these funds could go to Mexico, so we could create jobs in Mexico, so we could reduce the flow of migrants and, uh, incre and improve the condition of migrants here, of Mexican migrants here in the United States. First of all, I want to um, I wanted to just appreciate the opportunity to be in front of you. Um, from Mexico City, born born and raised in La Michoacana, a small little colony or well, block in the inner city. Um, and by working hard, I got to you know get into a research program, be in a PhD program, and ironically, now I get to talk to me to Mexican leaders at this point in a university setting. So it's, it's, an it's a great opportunity for me at this point. Um, and I guess for my question is, um, I know with the free trade ag agreement, basically it's about investment, investment in the country and mutual investment. Uh, of course, the United States has a lot of resources, but Mexico, uh, when Carlos Salinas de Gortari was here, he was talking about the opportunity of bringing more investment to Mexico. Um, how in your role, you, you were the leader um, once in uh, Mexico City and dealing with all the kind of complexities of Mexico City. How do you see your role, and especially as you as a possible president or future president of Mexico, how do you see the role of uh, different variables that you work with? Crime, corruption, inequality, poverty, the decentralization. How do you see your future role in that part? Um, and what political sacrifices would you do? If, if you could be specific on this part, because you've had experience ruling uh, in Mexico City, and now as a, press, uh, as a possible future president, you'll have to deal with that in the macro kind of system. And also, how do you see the role of Mexicans like me coming abroad, studying, and coming back? And what do you see the role of us as students coming in, especially related to the socialization of Mexico, the, uh, any additional value? What, what additional value do you think? Uh, people that come and bring different experience, uh, kind of bring to the plate, especially in terms of um, knowledge, integrity, and commitment. Well, what could be the, the sacrifices to be done uh, in, to combat crime, corruption, to uh, push uh, decentralization? Well, I, I won't see, I won't uh, be thinking of, uh, particularly of sacrifices. I think that uh, the, a new government, a government with a different commitment, well, m must uh, 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 combat crime, must uh, uh, attack corruption very vigorously, uh, starting from up, uh, from the upper levels to the lower levels. Uh, uh, it has to be a, a Political commitment. It has to be a personal commitment. It has to be. Uh, w it has to be done with the conviction that uh, it can be done, and uh, no. Uh, uh, that no uh, uh, corruption, any any kind of corruption, any size of corruption can be uh, tolerated. And I think that's uh, 
what has to be done in, in the particular case of Mexico. And well, regarding uh, other uh, issues like uh, decentralization, well, this is uh, uh, an effort that has to be done uh, to improve uh, regional conditions, to uh, uh, make our federalism uh, much more, more uh, equitable. Uh, so municipalities, states uh, have uh, more uh, resources and at the same time more capacity of decisions on different uh, issues. What would I uh, think is the role of Mexicans that come here to study and go back to Mexico? Well, I, I would expect that most of Mexicans who come here could go back to Mexico and find uh, opportunities. And that's, uh, that's one of the main, uh, most important changes I think we should be trying to, to reach in Mexico, that uh, those who uh, go to other countries to study, to uh, get a better uh, opportunity, well, could go uh, back to Mexico and, and find in Mexico the opportunity to apply the knowledge they have uh, acquired in, in their studies abroad that they could, uh, uh, I think that uh, it's, uh, it's an uh, obligation of the government, uh, one of the social uh, responsibilities of the government to uh, find, to open opportunities to those who uh, who go to study abroad, those who are uh, have uh, acquired new knowledge, uh, those that are best uh, prepared, so they could uh, really uh, contribute to Mexico's progress. I think that's a, a responsibility of the Mexican government, and that that should be understood by the authority, and that should be understood by those who are in government. That's not happening right now, that's, uh, that's true. But I think that's, uh, that's one of the important changes that uh, we must uh, try to uh, bring up in Mexico. So those who are now abroad don't stay uh, in, out of Mexico, but could go back to Mexico and apply what they have learned in, uh, in, the, in the opportunity that has uh, opened to them apply it in Mexico. That's what I would be thinking. Ingeniero, hello. Uh, I want to, to, to ask about something that we see both in this country and in Mexico. As we all know, in this country, um, the religious right ha make, had a big influence in keeping Bush in office. Um, I've read that in Mexico, there is a group called El Yunque, um, which is, uh, could be compared like, to, to this, a very uh, conservative Catholic uh, uh, group uh, that has a big influence in, in many politicians, has been linked to Fox and to many others in power. Uh, what do you know about it? What could be learned about it? Like what could progressive forces in Mexico learn about it, uh, about them, their strategies? And also I would want to ask about your position on some more cultural or social issues of that sort, the sort that the religious right sometimes uh, uses as, as a dividing force, but that, are, that refer to, to the oppression, for instance, of groups uh, like, uh, uh, or the situation of women, uh, the, the situation of gays and lesbians in Mexico, or, or, or more general issues about uh, 
discrimination by age or other forms. What would you do uh, if you were president about it? Well, uh, what uh, we know in Mexico is that uh, Junque is a, a, ver is a very uh, radical conservative organization uh, that many of the members of the, of the present administration are members of the Junque, that they work as a, a corporation, that they work as a hermandad, brotherhood. a brotherhood, something like that and that uh, they uh, protect and try to promote uh, the people from this, uh, from this organization. Uh, several members of the presidential cabinet, uh, several important members of the PAN are uh, said members of, the, of this uh, Juncker organization. Uh, uh, on, on the other, the other, uh, I couldn't say more than that. Well, that's a reality, and we—that's part of the of the Mexican right. And uh, well, we're uh, confronting them in many, in many aspects, and in general, in in our political activity. Regarding the the rights of uh, what uh, we could call uh, diversity, well, uh, we are proposing to uh, promote these rights, to make them uh, uh, fully respected, that uh, uh, that's uh, uh, trying to, to uh, uh, gain an equality for women, trying to uh, open the possibility of, of, uh, of uh, uh, legis legislating uh, regarding the rights of, uh, of uh, gays of lesbians, uh, I won't be, I couldn't be more, uh, I couldn't be more specific right now on exactly what we, are, we what we would be proposing, but we, we think that uh, uh, respect to this, uh, to this rights, uh, respect to this uh, diversity promoting the, uh, that this uh, different groups could, uh, uh, well, have the, the place in the society and the participation in different activities they, they can have and they should have is one of the commitments of progressive forces in, in the case of Mexico and particularly in the case of the, of the PRD which has been promoting the uh, rights of women who has been, uh, the, the PRD has been promoting the uh, respect and the rights of uh, uh, Diverse uh, uh, groups in, in uh, Mexican society. Not much, uh, not much more I could say on that. Thank you. Before we um, formally conclude, I would like to remind you that uh, there are other uh, talks in the series, and I invite you to take the flyer. We have left it uh, on your seats, and we hope to see you back here. Also, uh, to ask you to fill out this information card to allow us to know more about you and to contact you for our. Um, future events. Uh, having said that, uh, please uh, join me in thanking Guatemoc Cardenas for a most stimulating conversation.